the flag from Israel has the six-sided pointed star to it, also known as the Star of David, also known referred to in satanic symbols as a hexagram. Well, who has a flag that looks just like that? Well, look at Ethiopia. I'll put a flag for Ethiopia in the show notes. Go to psychopathendyourlife.com and click on show notes. The tab is up on the right-hand side. The symbols are how they show us who they are. But of course, they have put out symbols all over the place. So it's a matter of what symbols matter and what symbols don't. Because today is going to be talking about the admiralty laws, the laws of the sea. And I will try to unpack it the best way that I can without causing confusion. We essentially have a system in place that not many of us are very aware of. And that system plays out through the rest of the world. In fact, we are all officially slaves. So today I'm going to be talking about just some things in general right now. Um, There's a big thing going on now between Ukraine and Russia and supposedly nuclear war. Well, nuclear war, what a joke that is, right? They use certain things and that alleviates them from having to have policemen on every corner. Just these ideas, these ideas of getting blown up by some sort of nuclear bomb. Matter of fact, in the 50s when I was a child, we were taught drills how to hide under our desks in the event of nuclear bombs. Essentially, we have been under severe chaos, fear, and stress since the minute any of us were born. And that is how this is all work. Keep everybody so fearful that nobody will know what is going on. And so, yeah, this nuclear stuff, it's interesting about Ukraine because what better cover for all this financial things going on than the threats of war? But, you know, the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, or whatever his name is, at least they're coming out in the open a little bit because he actually has bona fide acting credits. He served time as a comedian, and I think he also participated in Dancing with the Stars. So we have an actor on the world stage in Ukraine who is actually an actor, as they all are. So yeah, so amazing that, huh? Also, I'd like to talk about um, some of the things that I'm not going to be covering in the show that will be more significant down the road. How asset forfeitures work in this country. How do they grab what they want that we think we own, but we really don't own, if you can unpack that one. I'll also be covering the laws in place right now. What laws are in place? When I first started talking about this thing a couple of years ago, I'm sure that several shows that I did got missed by people because it just seemed kind of way out there, right? Well, these laws are not way out there. They are, in fact, something that everybody should be concerned about. When I've been uploading shows, what happened was was that a lot of the show dates you'll see are not the correct dates because I uploaded the shows probably several months before the date will show on the shows because I had to take shows down, all that deal with YouTube and stuff. So anyway, so some of these things I've been talking about for a couple of years. So I'd like to reiterate that you might consider watching some of those shows that lay out how these laws are going to work. 
because I'll be talking today a little bit about the juvenile prison system in this country. Also, how do how does convict leasing happen? In other words, after the slaves got ended, how did we end up getting more cheap labor? Well, by leasing out convicts, people in the parole system. I will also be covering the Kigali principles, a key, key point to pay attention to. That is supposedly to protect us in case of any issues. And I will also be hitting on the Insurrection Act of 1807. That act calls for a complete confiscation of property, assets, and confiscation of people to join their cause. So these are pretty big deals. And after I go through all of these things, if you're not completely exhausted, stick around because the going really gets good at the end. What's at the end? Well, the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, I think, is the biggest key of all here. The 14th Amendment is what locked the rest of us in as slaves. We thought the 14th Amendment was to free the slaves and grant them citizenship, but it was a pretty big trick, which I'll be covering today. So I think that about rounds it up. I also have a bunch of resources over on the website. It's going to be a study-along show. You're going to catch more if you go and look more for yourself because that's the whole idea here is stop listening to people and start looking for yourself. So anyway, so enough of this. Um, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. When I say I'm going to pop open some files, I have files on all of this stuff, and now a lot of the files are starting to make more sense. So what I've been doing is when I go to record a show, I have already looked at the files and I've already come to my conclusion of what it all means. So essentially I'm going back and sharing what files I was reading through to bring me to the conclusion that I have today that we are all in fact slaves. So I hope this works out for you. Don't forget to show links and pay attention for yourself because this is this will impact everybody in the entire world. And always remember, evil has to come packaged and help. So pull up a chair and enjoy the show. Let's crack up on the file about civil forfeiture. What is that you ask? Well, I have been talking about this kind of in passing, so let me, with more information, let me take another look at it. Civil forfeiture in the United States. It has a history dating back several hundred years with roots in British maritime law. See, now we know a little bit more about how maritime law and money intersects. I don't know, this segment I think will start off, but down the road here in this show, you'll see why am I looking again at civil forfeiture because of this maritime law. And according to them, in the mid-1600s, when what was to become the United States was a British colony, the British Navigation Acts were enacted. 
these laws required ships importing or exporting goods from British ports to fly the British flag. Ships that failed to do so could be seized regardless of whether the ship's owner was guilty of any wrongdoing. Back then, it was easier to seize a vessel than to try to apprehend the owner who may be on the other side of the ocean. So, civil forfeiture is by seizing that asset. So, even if the owner isn't around, they want that asset, right? Very, very simple concept here. During the later colonial years, forfeiture practices by crown officials... Um, excuse me, wait a second here. I didn't think I had it turned on for a second. Okay. Crown officials, they were using writs of assistance were one of the many activities that angered colonists who saw the writs as unreasonable searches and seizures that deprived persons of life, liberty, or property without due process. Funny how this all works out, right? Because right now, civil forfeiture is alive and going swiftly in this country. Just trying to give you a little bit of the background here. Oh, these interesting rules and the laws. Okay, um, after the American Revolution, the early Congress wrote forfeiture laws based on British maritime law to help federal tax collectors collect custom duties. Yes, well, they got these laws in place, it looks like, so they could enforce these custom duties, <clears throat> which financed most of the expenses of the federal government in the early days of the Republic. So they learned early on, grab those assets because it pays for what they're doing. Huh, it kind of reminds me of how they learned to get those people in those institutions to do all the labor to pay for themselves. And then miraculously, all those same facilities become paid tourist attractions. So the Supreme Court, which is always a reliable source in this country, upheld these forfeiture statutes in situations where it was virtually impossible to get hold of guilty persons on the high sea while possible to get hold of their property. Yeah, um, a vessel which commits the aggression is treated as the offender, as the guilty instrument or things to which the forfeiture attaches without any reference whatsoever to the character or conduct of the owner. The seizure of the ship is justified by the necessity of the case as only the adequate means of suppressing the offense or wrong or ensuring an indemnity to the injured party. So yes, they're just forced to grab this stuff, right? During much of the 19th century, little mention was paid to forfeiture laws and that continues on to today. People don't really understand how this all works and effectively how dangerous it would be to drive in this country with anything the cops want to seize. So this is part of the reason psychologically why there is so much media attention in this country toward other countries and their rotten deeds, always pointing out other countries being illegal, not being democracy. Why? Because the real action is taking place here in this country. 
During Prohibition, Detroit police inspected equipment suspected of being used to make alcohol. So the U.S. government used forfeiture during the Prohibition years, 1920 to 1933. Police seized vehicles, equipment, cash, and other property from bootleggers. When Prohibition ended in 1933, much of the forfeiture activity ended as well, or so they say. Modern forfeiture was an infrequent resort until the last few decades because they really have cranked it up into full gear. To give you a little perspective, in the 1980s, they started with the war on drugs. Funny how that works, right? The government provides the drugs, gets the citizens hooked, and then creates a war to come in and fix it. Seems like we've seen this pattern before. So... The war on drugs has led to substantially increased civil forfeiture by federal, state, and local governments. And I'll be telling you in a minute here how they cut up the money that they get. <laughs> the market for illegal drugs in the United States is large, no kidding. The Drug Enforcement Administration estimates the annual profit for selling illegal drugs is $12 billion. Now, this is a number that I'm not gonna say is correct or not because there's a lot of hidden money in these drug deals because I don't believe drug deals show up on the US military official budget as income. So there's a lot of, a lot of fluff in these budgets when they start talking about how much drug money enters this country. And that's another site that if you want to, instead of blaming the drug addicts, you might take a look at how crippling living in this country is for a lot of people. You look at the nature of people zoned out on drugs in this country, and instead of blaming them, how about take a look at the oppression of these people being slaves, and they really don't even completely understand why and how they got to be slaves, which of course makes today's topic more interesting to me because this long history of getting us to be in the oppressed position, right? So, according to this journalist, of course, one of their people, a major turning point on forfeiture activity was the passage of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. This law permitted local and federal law enforcement agencies to share seized assets. According to them, civil forfeiture allowed federal and local governments to extract swift penalties from white-collar criminals and offer restitution to victims of fraud. So they just figured out a way in 1984 with this act how to extract money out of white people driving around because they've already had the thing about how to corral and enslave black people pretty well organized in this country. So from 85 to 93, authorities confiscated $3 billion of cash and other property, okay? That included both civil and criminal forfeitures. The methods were supported by the Reagan administration as a crime-fighting strategy. It said, it's now possible for a drug dealer to serve time in a forfeiture finance prison after being arrested by agents. So yeah, they really cooked the book. So. Um, they said that it's somewhat unusual because federal forfeiture laws, wait a second, I scrolled down too fast here. Um, well, 
it's robbery on the highway. Okay, what it is is here's how it works. How it works is let's say you and your um, child, he's been saving or she's been saving to buy a car, couple thousand dollars, a lot of money to you and your child, right? Well, that you find the best deal on the car in the next state over. So let's say you're in Colorado and you find a car over in Kansas, okay? So the the seller of the car obviously wants cash because they don't know you, you're from out of state and all those other kinds of things. So you and your child hop in the car from Colorado to drive over to Kansas to buy this car you found on Craigslist or somewhere, right? Well, let's say you get stopped along the way and the officer might ask you some questions like, well, why are you traveling to Kansas? And as a person eager to please, who really should have kept their mouth shut, you give the police some data by saying something like, well, we're driving to Kansas today because my son is, or daughter is buying a car there. Well, that gives that officer kind of something to sniff out, right? Well, how, they're thinking to themselves, well, you might have some cash, right? So all they have to do is suspect, suspect, okay, that you and your child are driving to Kansas to not just buy a car, but to enact some nefarious crime, okay? They just have to suspect that. So that officer in Kansas, let's say you get pulled over in Kansas, that officer in Kansas will seize that money from you, right? Right there by the side of the road they will haul you in and seize that money. Well, no charges will be made against you. They will just seize that money to kind of iron things out, right? Well, okay, so that money is yours because everybody knows the cops seized your money. Well, how do you get that money back? Well, there's the interesting problem because um, in order to get that money back, you're in Colorado, right? You just happen to be stopped driving through Kansas. so. In order to get that money back, you would have to hire an attorney to represent you in Kansas because remember, you're from Colorado. Well, the laws in Kansas are rapidly and much, much different than they were in Colorado. So to navigate this and get your $2,000 back, you're gonna to have to contract an attorney in, in Kansas. Well, that attorney is probably, and I'm just guessing, okay, it's gonna cost you a minimum of likely about $10,000 for this attorney in Kansas to go after the cops in Kansas to get your money back. Well, how do you think that's gonna work out? Well, probably not very good because you're likely also gonna be forced to return to Kansas to go through all these court proceedings. So now the cops have got your $2,000. So you have to decide, huh, do I invest $10,000 on some shaky deal with some attorneys in Kansas to prove my point that that was really our money? Well, see how it works because it would be exhausting and very expensive to prove your point by that thing. So there you see the miracle of how seizure and forfeitures work in this country. And I'm going to scroll down here because... Um, it's, it's big business. I mean, like as in huge business. Um, so I have a, I want to give you an example of, um, so I'm not going to give you all the legal stuff. It basically, the government could take your property. Okay. And then it's up to you to sort it out, which also backs what I'm talking about today with these admiralty laws. Okay. We are in fact, 
considered guilty until proven innocent. So if these seizure laws don't start to further that idea in your mind, then, well, keep listening, okay, because it all adds up to me at this point. There was an example, um, yeah, they have some examples of people who were, um, one is this guy I'll read you because I think it's probably true. This guy from Michigan, he was driving to California with $2,500 in cash when he was pulled over by police in Nevada. So he's from Michigan, right? The police in Nevada seized almost all of the cash under suspicion that it was a drug run. <clears throat> drug run, right? So this person, Lee, they hired an attorney who took half of his fee, leaving Lee with only 1100 remaining. So yeah, so some attorneys will work out shaky deals that they will actually tell you, if we get the money back, we will go ahead and give it half to you. But trust me, it's going to be very, very expensive to get any of this money. So I'm not going to over-engage on these stories because, you know, there's <laughs> there's a lot of them out there. Um, and they know the routes that these cars take typically with cash because people coming from Mexico might be taking cash to visit relatives. So it essentially is a robbery on the highway, okay? And um, all you have to do is be in a um, moving vehicle. Okay, so let me go through these estate here just to give you an example that um, what they need. Because I was talking about going from Colorado to Kansas, I'll give you Colorado's statutes, okay? In Colorado, prosecutors are required to provide clear and convincing evidence that property is connected to a crime. Government must prove that third-party owners knew about criminal activity connected to their property. But, if, if they're right and you're really a crook, based on these assumptions, how's the money split up? Well, 50% of that money that they seized from you and your kid, of that $2,000, 50% goes directly to law enforcement. They get party funds, okay? This, this money then becomes kind of like a little slush fund. I've read stories where cops will put in margarita makers because of all the money they get through asset forfeitures, okay? 25% goes to the law enforcement community. I guess that's to fund things like retirements, but I'm just guessing there, okay? And 25% goes to drug rehabilitation programs. Wow, that's pretty impressive, right? 50, 25, 25. Okay, so let's scroll down and see what Kansas does with their take of the money. Depends on if you got picked up in Kansas or on the Colorado side, right? Um, yeah, Kansas has some pretty draconian laws. If you were to make the wrong turn heading out of Colorado and wind up in Kansas and have a little bit of weed on you, you might be um, facing time in the Kansas State Penitentiary um, with the weed that you just got from the legal people in Colorado. So every state is different. So Kansas, let's talk about what happens if the money gets grabbed in Kansas. Prosecutors are required to prove by preponderance of the evidence that the property at stake is connected to a crime. Okay. Third party owners need to prove their own innocence. All proceeds go to law enforcement. So I think you kind of get the idea as far as um, how a lot of funding happens with the cops here. And um, I'll just move along from here. 
Okay, let's talk about how slavery and the um, prison system works in the United States. And here again, I brushed on some of the factors of this, so I'll kind of stick with this. There's a lot of aspects to how inmates are treated in this country. We have a bunch of different things. We have private prisons, we have federal prisons, and it is kind of a mess. So how do they make money on prisons in this country? Well, behind the walls of America's many prisons, there's over, I think, about 2,800 prisons, um, according to this Prison Policy Initiative. And the workforce in these prisons is constantly being replenished and can be paid by the barest fraction of the minimum wage. So they don't have to pay them much money because after all, they're in prison, right? It's a businessman's dream. They have no moral obligations to any of these people because after all, it is cheap. And a couple of things that also impact everybody else in this prison policy deal is that it lowers the wages of people outside of the prison population, right? Because big companies can find cheaper labor in prison, so that cuts out paying regular people wages to do their products. So the figures are also very disputed, so I'm not going to go very heavily into the figures, but um, the, it's, in this country, it falls under the Bureau of Prisons. It's an offshoot of the Department of Justice. Also, we call it the DOJ, okay? And its responsibilities for that, and um, they have a few different kinds of deals worked out so that um, the federal prison industries called the FPI, okay? That is a corporation owned by the United States government and it's the employer of many incarcerated workers. So federal prison industries falls under the Bureau of Prisons, which falls under the Department of Justice. So this is all legally going on within the prison system, okay? And um, the FBI is limited to who it can sell to. Well, not really, but this is what they're saying, right? Um, because of this, they don't have to pay the standard minimum wage. It can be capable of undercutting any company in the private sector. So the vast majority of FBI products can be sold only to the federal government. Since FBI is government-owned, Prisoners spend their days creating uniforms, road signs, mattresses, helmets, armor, and more for the government they are prisoners of. So they do official government work if you're a prisoner, okay? So this is also built as a positive by proponents of the system, meaning they think that inmates are giving back to the nation as a way to atone for their crimes and to give back to society. Well, yeah, you know, it's all about rah, 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 give your all for this country. And this is how the system has worked since the beginning of time. Everybody has to take a big one for the team because the team needs our help, right? Well, the team is also our oppressor. So, Okay, so let me see here. Um, 
Uh, they passed the 13th Amendment in 1865. That was shortly after the Civil War, which today I'm talking about the 14th Amendment. So this um, prison labor thing came right out of that same era. And it was stated as saying that neither slavery or servitude shall exist within the United States. Kind of a bold statement considering that none of this is true. It emancipated tens of thousands of slaves, especially in the southern United States. This created a sudden absence of workers and a need for a new source of cheap labor. So releasing all of these slaves supposedly created a new source they needed a new source for cheap labor. So get rid of the slaves supposedly on the books. And now you've got another problem because where do you get the new cheap labor to replace the slaves? Well, there you get it right there from the prison system. Okay. So um, anyways, they freed slaves and then they needed convict labor is basically how this thing worked out. And lots of interesting things here. I'll scan through. Um, Black men, to a lesser degree, women and children, were convicted on petty and often trumped-up offenses. Today, disappropriate jailing of racial minorities and vulnerable populations continues. Yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, the 155-year-old wording of the 13th Amendment had provided a legal loophole that has enabled prisons to make an estimated 500 million in profit a year off the backs of their inmates. The NAACP, which is a black organization, estimates that America contains 25% of the world's incarcerated population, although America constitutes less than 5% of the global world population. And those numbers, you've probably heard me talk about them before because this country also takes a disproportionate number of the world's opioids and medications. I think we take over 80 or 85% of the world's doses of opioids. Quite shocking numbers. But now these shocking numbers from this country start to make a lot more sense. At least to me, they do. So, um, America contains, blah, 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 um, America has a large source of workers with little choice in their own employment. Yeah, what are you going to do? You're in prison, right? And for more than a century and a half, those willing to turn a blind eye to moral questions have been making a fortune through this system. So, yeah, people obviously also think that, well, you know, if inmates want to work, they have to work and, you know, we'll just put them to work, right? So, um, they do the essential tasks of running the prison, but they also do these other duties, okay? Um, prison labor sprung into national consciousness during California's 2018 wildfire season. I've talked about this in the past where convicts were brought in to help fight fires for $2 a day, okay? The use of inmate labor saved the state $100 million a year. And then there's a lot of other tricks they pulled because you might think, well, that's not such a bad deal because 
they learn new skills while they're in prison, right? Learning how to fight fires. So they get out of prison, they can join a firefighting team. Well, not so fast. <laughs> that is the dream in some people's minds. But if you understand the law, in order to become a fireman or firewoman or whatever, you have to not have any felonies or prison time on your record. So they got you on the rear end part of this of the law, right? Yeah, we would give you a job, but oh, wait a minute, you don't qualify for that job. So anyways, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. And a lot of the portion of the people of this country, a very large, 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 large proportion of people are in for very simple things, okay? Um, convict leasing in Tennessee. The first attempt to introduce private convict convict leasing in Tennessee occurred in 1865, prior to the passage of the 13th Amendment. So uh, the problem with this arrangement quickly became apparent. The first convict lease issued in 1866 was prematurely terminated by the state in 1869 after administration problems arose. But that never stops these people, right? They went back and in February of 1871, they figured out how to get 300 convicts to go to the coal mines. Convicts working in coal mines, which ensured long-term employment and easier supervision. Well, of course, you're in a coal mine, kind of hard to escape, right? One way in, one way out. Um, they say that they could they abandoned that in 1896. Well, they abandoned that to other things. So um, what it was was that um, while the lease rate increased over time, one consistency through the leases was the removal of liability from the lease for escapes, sickness, and loss of prisoners. So they basically were doing their normal tricks and releasing liabilities from the people who were getting these slaves to work their coal mines and whatnot. And the general attitude is when one dies, we get another. So I don't think I need to drag you through every part of this brutal part of this business, but it's still going on today. Um, they, um, they also have these things going on with the slave population. They had breeding farms with mostly women and children. So they actually were breeding slaves to be sold. But that all kind of fell apart. Uh, because of depreciation, value, and deaths. And it's a very, very ugly thing. Um, they said it began in Alabama in 1846 and lasted until July the 1st, 1928. But I could right now go on and on and on until your eyes glazed over telling you how this thing is not really ever stopped, okay? After the Civil War in 1865, the court severely limited federal power to fight lynchings and private discrimination. When the 14th Amendment was adopted in 1868, it was expected that the Supreme Court would protect the rights of African Americans. But in the 30 years after the 14th Amendment was adopted, the Supreme Court only restricted its scope. So, uh, yeah, so 
they came to still find different ways and different laws to be able to use slaves. Um, and I looked a little bit into this because I've been circling so much around Louisiana. I wanted to know what was the deal with slave leasing in Louisiana. Well, surprise, surprise. Um, okay. Though the system varied from place to place, states essentially turned over the responsibility for managing prisons to labor-hungry businesses, planters, and corporations. For managing prisons, oh, excuse me, usually for a payment that was established by statute. So they started very early on working it out so these prisons were turned over to be managed by what they called labor-hungry businesses, okay? With few exceptions, southern states lacked prison structures in this period. And in the aftermath of the war, landowners and businesses feared an impending labor shortage. By 1867, supposedly after the Civil War, convict leasing was the established practice in every southern state except Virginia. Louisiana's convict leasing system was both similar to and different from those in other states. And Louisiana also has other interesting things. Let me see here. Um, one distinct aspect of convict leasing in Louisiana was the almost complete lack of record keeping. Officials did not present even a pretense of accountability during most of the system's history. So then, of course, some prison reformers come in and we could all guess how that works out. Um, another distinctive feature of the convict leasing system in Louisiana was that it went into effect before rather than after the Civil War. The Civil War was 1861 to 1865. So convict leasing in Louisiana took place almost continuously between 1844 and 1901. So yeah, um, there's some, just some horrible details that I will just go over here. We can all picture it was not a good deal for the slaves. Um, but really now, I mean, most of the prison population can, is black males, right? The system continues to punish the black males. So, um, as it was in other spheres, the Civil War marked a turning point in penal history. So, yeah, it did make a big turning point because they figured out how to get a bunch of imprisoned people to do the work that they wanted. And um, I'll try to think of to put some links over on the website, Psychopath in Your Life. I would encourage you, encourage you to go take a look for yourself. Because this slavery thing and the penal institutions here and how they use slaves. And it's also a lot of other interesting um, details because um, over, let me see here, I have some facts on the latest, um, it's impossible to tell the numbers, yes, no numbers are really kept, they really just jotted a lot of this stuff down, um, 
They said in Alabama that 200,000 African Americans were subject to the convict leasing system over the 80-year period before the system was formally ended in 1941. They supposedly ended it in 1941, but that's really not true because they brought back um, chain gangs in Arizona in the 1900s. So, um, well, one thing changes, another thing just opens up the door, okay? Uh, not ending until after World War II. Yeah, because 1940, 1945, we got our time frame there, right? Um, so there's lots of ways that everybody has become slaves. Um, there was exploitation of the 13th Amendment. Um, the early phrasing allowed lawmakers to use criminal punishment to legally force involuntary uh, servitude. So they had these things called black codes and pig, pig laws, P-I-G laws. Um, the term pig law derives from Mississippi where the theft of any property over $10 became grand larceny. The prison population subsequently quadrupled during this period. So that's kind of funny, right? They put these laws called the pig law in effect and they get four times the number of people to fill their prisons list. So it's hard to um, talk about this country being a democracy because it has in fact never been a democracy from the very beginning and i don't know where it is here now but i will just tell you off the top of my head essentially 85 percent of inmates are in this country are males and a very few percentage are females there's this thing about locking up the men um, but they're trying to fix that now to lock up more of the women. So I think that's about all I have in this dreadful file. Um, like pretrial defendants, civil detainees could not be forced to work. Yeah, they can't be forced to work, but they will have to work, right? Um, all of these corporations use this these loopholes, okay? People like... Um, I have a list of some of them here. People like Victoria's Secret, a lot of people use prison labor. A lot of people use. They use them on the phones. You might be talking to a prisoner next time you call in to talk about your shipping problems. Um, they have a million different corporations that hire them. It's a hidden, dirty part of this horrendous company country. So yeah, prison labor, onward we go. Let's talk about incarcerating children or youth incarceration in this country. And I will share with you what I know about this dreadful situation. Each year, an estimated 250,000 children, some not yet in their teens, are prosecuted in adult criminal courts and subjected to the consequences 
of adult criminal convictions. In addition, 36 states continue to incarcerate youth under 18 in adult jails and prisons, while young people are at greater risk of suicide and physical and sexual attacks. I think that would be called the plan, not the bug in the system, right? We keep going round and round and round. President Joe Biden, go Brandon, on Tuesday signed an executive order. This was Tuesday, uh, middle of January of 2022. Executive order that will phase out the Department of Justice's use of private prisons. This is about the adult prisons. I'm interjecting this. Um, the act is in part of the administration's effort to address racial inequality in the country and make good on Biden's campaign promises to black Americans who were integral to securing his presidential win. Because of all those black people voting for Biden, he's doing something about the prisons, which locks up a great deal of them. Um, the order directs the Justice Department to decline to renew contracts with privately operated for-profit prisons. Yeah, this started under Obama and then Trump axed it. And now scholars are taking a deeper look at the restored policy and question its overall impact on racial inequity. Yeah, I think the effect is in simple terms here is if you lock up enough black men you can destroy destroy enough black families right get the men out of the picture make the women and children struggle so yeah back to the children here um the united states incarcerates more of its youth than any other country in the world through the juvenile courts and the adult criminal justice system this reflects the larger trends in incarcerating practices in the, in the United States. In 2010, approximately 70,800 juveniles were incarcerated in youth detention facilities alone. So we have these youth detention facilities, but as of 2006, approximately 500,000 youth were brought to detention centers in a given year. So that's a lot of kids being brought to these detention centers. So, um, and the data doesn't even reflect juveniles tried as adults because they're pushing more and more children to be tried as adults for their crimes. Okay, as of 2013, around 40% were incarcerated in privatized for private facilities. But they say that there are some positive trends. They're saying that youth confinement rates were down 70% from 1995 to 2019. So they said that was because a drop in youth arrests, kids not getting arrested as quickly. So I don't know that I would believe any of this information. Um, I think that it sounds good on the surface. Um, Young people arrested and referred to court face the same odds of confinement in 2019 as they did in 2005, one in three. Public systems still confine more youth for relatively minor offenses than for serious ones, so kids are still getting locked up. Black and Native American youth were far more likely to be confined than Asian and Pacific Islander 
white and Hispanic youth. So black and Native Americans far more likely to be incarcerated. Yeah, they say the number is down, but here again, we've got a bunch of different systems going on. So I doubt that they were really that far down. But how'd this get started? Well, 1975, another key thing happening that I didn't cover in the show about 1971. In 1975, they added reauthorization to the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act. So this is a list of some of the additions to this act. In 1975, <clears throat> programs were developed to assist children with learning disabilities who entered the juvenile justice system. 1984, a new missing and exploited children program was added. 1984 again, strong support was given to programs that strengthen families. 1988, <clears throat> studies on prison conditions within the Indian justice system. 1990, they began funding child abuse training programs to instruct judicial personnel and prosecutors. So, um, I don't know why this one's in here, but 1983, a juvenile boot camp program was designed to introduce delinquent youth to a lifestyle of structure and discipline. 1992, a community prevention grants program gave startup money to communities for local juvenile crime detention plans. 1992, <coughs> excuse me, from 1992 through 1997, 44 states and the District of Columbia passed laws making it easier for juveniles to be tried as adults. 1992 to 1997 that was calling attention to the growing trend away from the original model for treatment of juveniles in the justice system. Yes, a big growing trend because likely they couldn't make money on those juvenile facilities. Now, I am just inserting this as my own negative comment here. I'm guessing that they couldn't make money on these kids, so they transferred them over to the adult prisons where the money was, right? But you're going to have to decide for yourself. Okay, um, the de decreasing distinction between how youth and adults are tried in the criminal justice system has caused many within the legal system, as well as other activists and organizers, to criticize the juvenile justice system. The tough-on-crime attitudes of these legislative events reflect the stance's popularity in public opinion. People turning on other people. Always a theme here, right? Get this kid off my hands. This kid is a problem. I don't want to have time to sit down and talk to this kid and understand their needs. Get the cops involved. Get the juvenile court system involved. Let's straighten this kid out. That's how it works. And, of course, they rush in to help straighten out these kids. So, yeah, so this also got played into effect because um, most of the original policies in the 1990s and the 2000 included California's infamous three strikes law, okay? That's how they proceeded to get more people into prisons for longer periods of time. 
Reforms in criminal justice reforms and juvenile system in particular are often fought in the court of public opinion. The popular news media plays a crucial role in promoting the myth of a new generation of young super predators threatening the public. Despite documented decreases in youth crime, particularly in violent crime, which indicate a 68% decline in youth homicide in the 90s, but the overall coverage of youth crime is increasing. Despite evidence to the contrary, 62% of respondents in a 1999 survey on youth delinquency, they all believed that youth crime had increased when in fact it has gone down. They have to get the public to agree to all of these things. This is the deal with all of this going on with his 14th Amendment and all of that. They offer us things and we agree to these same things. So before you go running off yelling that we're all a bunch of victims here, keep in mind, we have been offered these things throughout history and we have agreed that these are some of these circumstances we all wanted to see enacted. Now, how much of that was just tricks and all of that? Well, all I'm saying is this was all agreed upon by people that this was a good system for these children. So then they had a lot of, um, they're over, overcrowded, understaffed. Of course they are. Um, there was a center in Maryland that had a lot of problems. I don't think I need to fill out every blank here for you. It is a horrible, horrible system. Studies indicate that incarcerating youth offenders is not the most effective way of curbing delinquency and reducing crime. No, of course it is not. It might take parents and the adults paying attention to these children. And that would be the crime is that no one is paying attention to these children and they're passing them off to somebody else to deal with. Everybody originates with the problems and then lets these psychopaths come in for the fix. Never going to be a valid plan. So <clears throat> most of them are not going to grow, grow out of it. The harm done to the emotional, mental, and social development of incarcerated youth combined with the separation from family and community and the congregation of offenders, in other words, getting all these children who had problems congregating together, makes previous incarceration the leading indicator for repeat offenders. So yeah, you get a kid who's done a bad act, put them in with other kids who've done bad acts, and there you go from there. It is actually a greater predictor even than weapon possession, gang membership, <clears throat> and bad relationship with parents. Yes, it all starts in the home, the family system. But you break up the family system, and what is the outcome? Well, a lot of kids in trouble. Are children being listened to today? I would argue hardly anybody is listening to children today because that would involve putting down those devices, not turning those children over to therapists to fix, but put down our own devices and speak to the children. Listen to what they have to say. They want to talk, but sending them off to talk to strangers is never going to be any kind of a fix. So that is the status with what's going on with all these sad, unfortunate children in the system here in this 
country they call the United States of America should be the United States of all the slaves. Let's talk about the Kigali Principles. I have spoken about the Kigali Principles in the Insurrection Act of 1807. I've spoken about those in the show that I did about how food will control us. So what I will be covering now, since we're talking about how we in fact have no rights, I'll cover a few details about the Kigali principles that I did not cover during that show. So, the Kigali principles, they're designed to make sure that civilians are not abandoned by the international community ever again. Well, what happened was in the 1990s, UN peacekeepers left Rwanda before the 1994 genocide. And then there was also an event in Srebrenica in 1995, which was considered a massacre. Okay, so what happened was, was that evidently, according to them, the UN peacekeepers turned their backs on Rwanda. Kigali is a city within Rwanda, okay? So... What happened was they got together and it was signed to support efforts so that this would never happen again. A lot of countries signed on. The United States signed on under President Obama. It announced its support for a set of principles that give a green light to UN peacekeeping troops and police for the use of force to protect civilians in armed conflicts. So, it was signed by U.S. Ambassador Samantha Power, and she said that it was focusing on the responsibility to protect citizens and that the United States was proud and humbled to join 28 other countries that have pledged to abide by the 17 pledges. So they came up with these pledges so this would never happen again. Well, I think this is the trap that's being set so that when conflict arises, whether real or imagined in this country, they will be able to call out the Kigali principles. At the website psychopathinyourlife.com, I pointed out a um, video game that they published around the, before this time talking about the UN invading the United States. I think that video game was a form of signaling about what is ahead. Why do they signal these things? Well, I believe the reason they signal these things has to do with their belief in magic. What that may mean, and I will be getting back to that in more detail later, what that may mean is that in order to attack us later, they have this deal where they let us know in advance what is ahead. And then, of course, typically people lull back to sleep, don't take it seriously, 
And then when they attack, they have justified it because we have already been warned, okay? There are some people that think that this will have a great impact, okay? Typically, they're saying that it will lead to a mass roundup of political dissidents. Well, that could be very, very true because under that, we have the National Defense Authorization Act. And that gives authority right now in the present moment to arrest and detain people, okay? It also will allow them to keep people from congregating and planning. So it will also mean they signed a special executive order, 13603, and that order called for the seizing of personal property. Seizing of personal property will be covered in that show about how food will control us. It's already in the works, okay? And the reason I'll cover a little bit of it here is because I actually recorded those shows so long ago that possibly you didn't see it or possibly it didn't register with what was to come. So yes, this is in effect right now. It will also allow for the seizing of personal assets such as food and water, okay? It will also have control over food and water besides a seizing. It will allow for the prohibition of weapons of any kind, including guns, knives, or chemicals, which can be turned into explosives. It will become a capital crime to possess a weapon of any type when this thing gets triggered. It will also allow for the confiscation of property, homes, and businesses. Arrest without due process, according to the National Defense Authorization Act. So they will also likely be putting in checkpoints. I talked about this almost two years ago. Checkpoints between states will become a thing. Now, can I predict all this is going to happen? Well, of course not. But I can tell you that they have taken the time to write this into law. So why would they write this into law if they had no plans to use it, right? They also have forced relocation of people they want to employ with them, okay? It's specified by the Civilian Inmate Labor Program and the Civilian Conscription Program. Under the Secretary of Labor in the same Executive Order 13603, this will mark the introduction of slave labor into America, which would be called unpaid conscripted people to work for their side. So um, they also talk about uh, outlawing free speech. Well, you know, are they outlawing something we really never had? Yeah, probably. The installation of mass surveillance programs, people turning on other people will be the way this whole thing will work. So, um, yeah, and they call for the total suspension of the Constitution under this, these executive orders. So, will all this happen? Well, I think your guess is as good as mine. If I were you, I would consider it um, serious unless otherwise noted. The thing about information is use it to do your own thinking about what is going on. So, what they said was that these Kingali principles can kick into effect 
under the order of the United States president. All they have to do is call for that to happen. What will also happen, a lot of other things will get triggered during this time. So the other principles of this are the two biggest funders of the Kingali principles through the United Nations are the United States and China, the two biggest countries who fund this deal. So you can bet your boots, the Chinese boots will be on the soil here at some point ahead in this game they have set up for us. So believe it or not, they're warning us that this is likely going to be taking place. I take them at their warning. After the Civil War, many states passed Civil Rights Acts that granted the rights of citizenship to blacks. But some congressmen believe that unless there was federal protection, those state laws could be easily overturned. That's why they proposed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Unlike the law of Dred Scott, which says that people of African descent, whether they were slave or free, can't be citizens of the United States. Now the 14th Amendment says that everybody born or naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States and entitled to the equal protection of the laws. The amendment also barred former members of Congress who'd been loyal to the Confederacy from voting or holding public office. Most Southern states opposed the amendment and refused to ratify it. So Congress made its passage a requirement for states to be readmitted to the Union. The right of citizenship came with other benefits for blacks. They could serve on juries and run for public office. They could also move freely around the country, assured that their rights would be protected in every state. The 14th Amendment establishes finally the meaning of citizenship in the United States and the consistency of citizenship in the United States, meaning that the people born in the United States would be citizens, but also that the federal government would establish national citizenship. So someone born in Georgia and someone born in New York now had the same claim to the United States, the same claim to the government of the United States. Okay, let's talk about the 14th Amendment here, and it's going to be a little bit of a windy trail, but let me try to break it down for you because this is all fairly fuzzy in my own brain right now, and I will show you what I've been looking at to hopefully get myself less fuzzy here, and let me get this file up here. 14th Amendment, okay. I also found a resource on YouTube has been who has been looking into that. So before I get to the 14th Amendment, one other thing that will be covered in the show that I did about how food will control us is the Insurrection Act of 1807. This is why you keep hearing them talk about the insurrection at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. They like to signal us with these buzzwords, which they're probably going to use as a hammer down the road. The Insurrection Act of 1807 is a United States federal law that empowers the President of the United States to deploy U.S. military and federalized National Guard troops within the United States in particular circumstances, such as to suppress civil disorder, insurrection, or rebellion. It is right now in play for the fourth time in history of this country. So, look at that show for more of the details. Okay, let's talk about the 14th Amendment. 
The 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution was adopted on July the 9th, 1868, as one of the Reconstruction Amendments. It is often considered as one of the most consequential amendments. It addresses citizen, citizenship rights and equal protection under the law and was proposed in response to issues relating to former slaves following the American Civil War. Always a problem and they come in with a solution, right? The amendment was bitterly contested, particularly by the states of the defeated Confederacy. They were forced to ratify it in order to gain representation in Congress. The amendment, particularly its first section, is one of the most litigated parts of the Constitution. So it formed a lot of landmark decisions like Brown versus Board of Education regarding racial segregation, Roe versus Wade regarding abortion, Bush versus Gore regarding the 2000 presidential election, and this other thing by Hodges regarding same-sex marriage. The amendment limits the actions of all state and local officials and also those acting on behalf of such officials. Well, it seems a little bit confusing and if you're confused right now, you join me because I was very confused by all this. Here is what I think it is in a nutshell and I will give you some links over on psychopathinyourlife.com to the website. Look under the section called Resources 14th Amendment and there you see some posted links to take a look at. I ran across a very nice man who has been going through this on YouTube. He appears to be very sincere and smart in his efforts. So I communicated to him a little bit because I needed to understand a little bit more about how this 14th Amendment works. I think, I think, okay, that this amendment was what sealed the fate for all of us, okay? We saw it at the time as being something to help the slaves, but I think that it in fact put all of us as slaves under their system. So by submitting to become citizens, we have submitted to becoming slaves to the United States of America. So part of the correspondence here is what he said to me. He said, everything they offer is voluntary. They started, they started to do this contractual government and offers a long time ago. It's the historic and preferred way that governments grow their power. Military force is very expensive and usually doesn't work in the long run. The people know they're, they're under occupation, but it's best that they consent. Yeah, see, we consented and we've allowed them to have us under occupation. See how it's worked? If you can get people dependent upon your offers, then they will willingly follow. And this backs up my long-held quote, evil has to come packaged as hell. He went on to say, first they created the 14th Amendment, which is a federal citizenship by congressional amendment. Federal citizenship, right? About the same time, they started imposing state marriage licenses. 
which started first for interracial marriages because the state on a whim deemed it illegal for people to interracially marry. Public schools run by the state fully spread after Reconstruction. They had us in that trap, right? Then he went on to say that around the turn of the last century, they implemented voluntary birth registration, which grew into birth certificates. That was the creation of the legal person attached to a natural child. Then with the New Deal, they took away the people's ability to actually pay debts and got them to contract away absolute ownership of their labor through a social security number they gave us. So yeah, there is a lot that has to do with how we all became entrapped. Now, I would not attempt to try to tell you what all this person is uncovering on their channel. I would suggest I will put them under resources for 14th Amendment. I believe the bottom line is this amendment, everybody thought it was for the slaves, but the impact was that we all, in fact, became slaves to the system. So, um, um, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's just, like I said, I'm not going to repeat I'm just getting my head around what all this means. But what this essentially means is that plan accordingly because you, in fact, have no rights. And this is the same thing that was done all around the world. And at the close of these comments here, I'm going to be playing a tape. Um, tape, I sound like I'm... We used to call them videotapes, right, back in the VHS days. <laughs> I'm going to be playing a segment from a gentleman named Maxwell. This Jordan Maxwell person defines to a T what these admiralty laws mean. And I will have more resources. This is going to be a, if you want to learn this stuff, you might want to go over to the website and dig into some of these links. Yeah, so there's a lot to this. And this clip I will be showing right now or airing right now will explain how the trick operates and the basis for how it operates is they have this flag okay when the United States government is doing these admiralty things they display a fringe flag this fringe flag means that we're under admiral or laws of the ocean. It's kind of crazy and it sounds kind of confusing, but here's how it works. If you look at a U.S. courtroom, you will see a U.S. flag and that flag will have gold fringe on it. That gold fringe puts this rules of the admiralty into play. And I know you're going to think, wow, this is sounding really confusing, but it's really not all that confusing once you listen to the clip that will play next about how we have been totally, totally conned in this entire deal. So anyway, so I'm going to close this for now, and I'll be back with where we pick up from here, but be safe out there. Goodbye for now. Understanding words is what you really need to start doing. You need to start doing your homework and understanding words.
if you put an S in front of words, it becomes swords. And that's what words are. They are cutting. They can cause you great trouble. Humans are word control creatures. So we need to establish what words mean. Again, when we talk about law, there's a Roman maximum in law that says, for he that would be deceived, let him. Simply meaning, if you are so ignorant as to be deceived, then that's your business, that's your problem. So you need to do your homework and find out what words mean, especially in relation to law and government. Because there is a whole a world of occultism that is operating today throughout the world in which you use certain words, and when those words are used in a court, they don't mean the same thing at all. Understanding law and the words of law, there are two things that this planet has. Water and earth, water and land. Consequently, there are two kinds of law, the law of the land and the law of water. You've heard the term law of the land, but in point of fact, that's precisely what this word means, law of the land, because it is the people who live on land. And that is opposed to something else called the law of the high seas or the law of water. You need to understand the difference. The law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on the land. And so consequently, the law of the land is different in every country. You can do things in America you can't do in Russia. You can do things in Africa you can't do in England. So the law of the land is the law of the culture that lives on that particular land. However, there is a higher law that dominates the entire world. It's called the law of the water, or the law of the high seas. The law of water is referred to as the law of money. It doesn't matter what color you are, where you're from, or where you live. Money is money. And any time you're doing banking or using money, you are now under the law of water, maritime admiralty. If you go back in history, in ancient history, where all of this began, back in the land of Cana, and I've heard, you probably have heard in the Bible, the land of Cana. The Canaanites were Phoenician, Phoenician bloodline. And in the ancient Phoenician language, Cana meant merchant banker. The very word merchant comes from mer, M-E-R, for the sea, for water. As a mermaid, we have merchant. Merchant bankers. Let me give an example of the difference between the law of water and the law of the land. The law of water, as I said, is a law of banking, money, as opposed to the law of the custom of the people or the law of the land. Um, the Statue of Liberty must be put in water. It could not be put on American land as such. It had to be put in the harbor because it's not the Statue of Freedom. It's a Statue of Liberty. Liberty is what a sailor gets when he pulls into port on a ship. He gets liberty. He's not free. So America is not the land of the free and the home of the brave. We're not free or brave. 
period. We're not free. This is not a free country. Now let me give you an example of how this law of the water works. Why is it that you have to go to court? People are always concerned about going to court. You go to court because you play basketball and tennis on a court. How do you play tennis on a court? You play with a racket. Why? Because that's what it is. It's a racket. And make no mistake, they do not pick words by chance. These words are very serious. They do not use words and terms um, with no avail. These words are very important. When you go into a court, what's the idea of going to court? It's a game, like basketball. The whole idea in a court is to put the ball back in the other guy's court. Uh, one team gets up and they throw the ball over to that team of lawyers. That team gets up and throws the ball back into their court. And consequently, it's a ball game. And the judge is wearing a black robe, so he is the referee. The judge is the referee. He doesn't care which side wins or loses because he's going to get paid anyway. So he couldn't care less. He's merely there as a referee, and that's why he wears a black robe. And that's another interesting subject we can get into later. But the judge is a, is a referee between two teams. The judge, we are told, rules from the bench. The word bench in Latin is a bank. Therefore, the judge rules for the bank. Where do you find banks? You find banks on both sides of a river. They're called river banks. And what does a river bank do? It directs the flow of the current sea. <laughs> the juice. Consequently, your money is current sea because it's the flow, the cash flow. And I'll give you an example of how this works. When a ship pulls into a harbor, all ships are referred to as female. Airships, rocket ships, sailing ships are always female. Why? There's a very good reason. Maritime Admiralty Banking Law says all ships are female because uh, they're carrying items. They're carrying items for money, and so consequently they are under Maritime Admiralty Law. Admiralty is where we get the word admiral, admiral of the navy. <clears throat> Let me give you an example of how this works. When a ship pulls into a harbor, it parks at the dock, and it ties off at the dock. The captain has to provide for the um, port authorities a certificate of manifest, because yesterday the ship was not here. But this morning the ship pulled in, so it has manifested. So consequently, all the products, the $800 million worth of TVs or Toyotas, have manifested. So each one of those items coming off of that ship has come off of water. And each end, they has come in a ship. And consequently, on a ship, all ships have a captain. The word captain comes from a Latin word, capital, money. So the captain represents the money that's on board the ship. And as I said, the captain has to present to the port authorities a certificate of manifest.
for each and every item. How much does it weigh? What color is it? How many doors does it have? Etc. And consequently, the captain presents a certificate of manifest. The ship is sitting in its berth. Wherever a ship sits when it docks is called its berth. She sits in her berth, berthing a ship. Consequently, all the items, as I said, coming off that ship represent money. They came in on water. They are maritime admiralty product. And this is true all over the world. Now, when you were born, your mother's water broke. And when your mother's water broke, you came out. And this is why you have to have a birth certificate because you are a maritime admiralty product under international law. You are considered, your body is considered a maritime admiralty product. Your mother delivered you. This is why if you go to Sears and buy a refrigerator, they will ship it to you. They will deliver it. And that's why you were in your delivery room. Your mother was delivering a product. Maritime Admiralty, you came down your mother's birth canal. <laughs> and once you, uh, and as you're taking one of the, uh, the televisions or the cars off the ship and it falls down and breaks, uh, that's all right. Sometimes they're stillborn, so consequently you've lost money on that one. Therefore, you have to have a death certificate. And it's always signed by the dock. The doc has to sign your birth certificate and your death certificate. All of these words and terms are maritime admiralty banking words. And therefore, if you understand lawyers and judges and courts and government are all under international maritime admiralty law. All religions, all churches in the world operate under maritime law. This is why all churches are divided into denominations, like 20s and 50s and 100s. Serious. This is why they're called denominations, because all churches are nothing more than the product of maritime admiralty banking. It's an extraordinary story of occult uh, treason, high treason and crimes against the state. Make no mistake about it, there has never been a country on the face of the earth as far back into history as you can go. There has never existed a country in which the people rose up and demanded their right to be free. Never. The concept of human, spiritual, intellectual, and physical freedom is a totally uh, concept that has never, ever existed on the earth. The only time that has ever come into existence was the founding of this country where it was understood that we were sovereigns and we owned our bodies and consequently since 1868 we're now on the International Maritime Admiralty Law. Think about this, when cowboys and in Indian movies, when the cowboys would ride into town, they get off the horse, they were wearing guns. How come they could walk into a bar carrying guns? And if two guys got in an argument, they could go out on the street. 
and draw on each other in front of the sheriff's office and the sheriff would do nothing. How come? How come that men could go out in the street and shoot each other in front of everyone and had nothing be done about it? The reason why is because before 1868, all Americans were considered sovereigns. And that's one of the nice things about being a sovereign, is you have the right to be yourself. And consequently, you need to understand that in one last point I'm going to make before I introduce your speaker, that in 1868, there was a corporation founded. In, uh, anyone can incorporate a company. Well, in 1868, there was a company incorporated. And in that particular company, the founders of that company called it, they referred to it as the United States Corporation. And they stipulated that anybody who would be a member of that corporation or work for that corporation would be called not an employee, but a citizen. So today, if you are asked, are you a citizen of the United States, what you think you're being asked is, are you lawfully in this country to do business? That's not lawfully what's being asked. They didn't ask you if you were in America lawfully. They asked you a specific question. Are you, of your own volition, out of your own mouth, testifying that you are a citizen of the United States? Because in that way, citizen of the United States means you are an employee of a foreign corporation operating on international maritime law. So today, the president of the United States is the president of a privately owned company. The company is called United States. And the word president is always a word that is used in corporate law. Banks have presidents. All companies have presidents. So there's a corporation called United States, privately owned, and it has a president. President Bush is not the president of America. President Bush is the president of a privately owned company. Privately owned, out of England. And you need to understand words and terms. Because I believe that there is a divine presence in the universe that men call God, and one day that divine presence is gonna move on the earth and we're going to see freedom come back to this world. And when it does, you're going to need to understand words and terms and how they have been used to trick you.